He didn't do it. You couldn't have known that. God tried to stop me from killing an innocent man, and I ignored the sign. How can I even hope for forgiveness? I think sometimes it's easier to feel guilty than forgiven. Which means what? That maybe your guilt over these deaths has become your reason for living. And maybe you need a new reason to go on. I, I, I don't want to go on. Can't you see? I'm old. I have cancer. I've had enough. The only thing that is holding me back is that I am afraid. I'm afraid of what comes next. And what do you think that is? Oh, you tell me. Is atonement even possible? What does God want from me? I think it's up to each one of us to interpret what God wants. So people can do anything? They can rape, they can murder, they can steal all in the name of God and it's okay? No, that's not what I'm saying. Well, what are you saying? Because all I'm hearing is some new age, God is love, one-size-fits-all crap. Hey, Dr. Truman. No, I don't have time for this now. Greg, it's okay. Look, I understand. No, you don't understand. You don't understand. How could you possibly say that? Now, you listen to me. I want a real chaplain who believes in a real God and a real hell. I hear that you're frustrated, but you need to ask yourself... No, I don't need to ask myself. I need answers. And all your questions and your uncertainty are only making things worse. I know you're upset. God, I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I am running out of time. I'm trying to help. Well, don't! Just get out! Get out! Get out! Julia, come on. Listen, come on. Come on, the guy's just freaking out. He didn't mean what he said. Yeah, he did. He absolutely did. Today, uh, I'm going to be able to look you in the eye, so to speak, and tell you how to receive forgiveness. I, told, I showed you my, uh, my box that I like to tell the kids upstairs at NMCLA, you know, is my candy box, and they open it up, and whoa, that's a lot of fun to see kids scared. And um, when, I, when I was like in grade seven, I even made this, this box a lot like this, but it had a hole in the, the bottom, and I'd put my finger in it, and I'd cover it with fake blood, and I'd, I'd say to girls, look what I found on the way to school and they'd open it up and there'd be my finger covered in blood and then I'd wiggle it a little bit and oh, the screams were, they were just delightful. I, I watched a TikTok this week of, of a Christian father who, I don't know if he's Christian after this joke, but he, he left piles of clothes of his kids and himself and, uh, made his wife believe that the rapture had taken place and then sort of filmed her, her screams from behind. <laughs> mean stuff. Um, look, 
we, we've all been deceived. I have been deceived, got part of an eBay scam that is embarrassing. Nobody likes to admit that they have been suckered. I don't know how many calls you've received lately from like Revenue Canada saying that they need your social insurance. I mean, being deceived is no fun. Um, and we've all been on the receiving end of that. We can be deceived, but for all the ways that we are deceived by others, is there anything worse than the way that we can deceive ourselves? And that's, I think, what Jesus wanted to end his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about deception, maybe worst of all, the way that we deceive ourselves. We've been in this series throughout the year, talking about the, these words of Jesus, and we've called it, what if Jesus was serious? And we've called it that because for so long we've believed that these are just, you know, wise words, probably unattainable, but we're starting to look at it like maybe we're supposed to actually live these out. I think that's what Jesus intended for us in his teaching. And you'll find in this sermon what Jesus had to say on happiness and influence and relationships and marriage and divorce and enemies and authenticity and prayer and worry and judgmentalism. It's, it's been a ride. And now we come to the very end and it's all about how we can be spiritually deceived, self-deceived. And Jesus explains these scenarios that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks and warns us to avoid each one of them, each one of these deceptions, the deception of the wide road. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The wide road is popular and it's easier and ultimately it leads to destruction. So don't be deceived. Uh, it's the deception of, of the of the idea of there being many ways to God, uh, many roads to God, many truths. And uh, the narrow way talks about really one truth, one way to God. But it's easy to see why so many believe in the wide road. We live in a day of wide roads with multiple choices and unlimited individualization and every truth being uh, uh, your truth, a good truth. You know, when you look at the religious world and their spiritual texts, there's the Bible, there's the Bhagavad uh, Gita. I'm pronouncing it wrong. Bhagavad Gita. Sorry, sorry, I'm not trying to minimize it, but the, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, when it comes to religious leaders, um, Krishna, Muhammad, uh, Buddha comes to religious groups. You can link yourself with Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Judaism and Scientology. So you're free to choose, you know, take your pick from among the countless philosophies and worldviews crowding the cultural landscape. Why? Well, because really all roads lead to the same God. Well, um, if all spiritual paths are equally legitimate, it doesn't really matter what you believe, much less who or how you worship. The problem is that there are actually some pretty serious divides. Jews do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Protestants do not recognize the Pope as the leader of the Christian church. 
uh, Baptists do not recognize each other in the LCBO. See what I did there? Huh? But all kidding aside, the differences are real. Uh, You take Buddhism. The Dalai Lama himself has stated publicly that the central doctrines of Buddhism and Christianity are, are not compatible. He has been quite open with the fact that you cannot be a Buddhist Christian or a Christian Buddhist. And he's right. Uh, Christianity believes in a personal God. Buddhism does not even believe in a, in a higher being. Um, that is a divide that is, is simply insurmountable. Uh, th- that's not two different paths that lead to the same place. I mean, it's two different, two different destinations on the map entirely. It's, it's true when you compare Christianity to other major world religions. Uh, Christians believe there's one God. Hindus believe there are millions. Uh, Christians embrace Jesus as God himself in human form. Muslims don't even rank Jesus at the top of the prophets, much less the savior of the world. Whenever you have a divisions like this, you, you have two options. You can either say that somebody is right in that particular area, and that everybody else is wrong, or you can say that everyone is wrong. What you can't say is that everyone is right. That, that, that it's all leading to the same path, the same truth, the same God. That would be intellectually confused at best, but more likely intellectually dishonest. Um, And the areas of disagreement, they're not trivial in nature. Most importantly, who do you say Jesus is? Last week we talked about how you can be deceived by false teachers. Jesus calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. And and we get deceived because we adopt the world's standard of measuring success. When Jesus says you need to actually judge them by their spiritual fruit. And by the same token, he says we can deceive ourselves by being false followers. Thinking our our spiritual fruit is all about performance, all about outward religiosity. And then Jesus comes to this passage. The most heart-wrenching picture of self-deception, I think, I could imagine. Here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Is there a more sobering, passage in all of scripture? Uh, and, and is there a more sobering word in that passage than many? Uh, Jesus said many will be convinced that they belong to God and be surprised when they are cast away from his presence. Sometimes we deceive ourselves, right? Uh, With words, we buy into magical thinking. We say that maybe if we say something enough times, it will actually be true. I stopped growing when I was about 18 or 19. Oh, sorry. And, um, you know, I I capped at at 5'11", 5'11 and a half, depending on what haircut I had at any given time. And I thought, 
let's just round up. And uh, I started just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm six foot. Uh, and I think I'm shrinking now, actually, uh, which happens after age 45. Um, but as much as I said six foot, hey, I'm six foot. I'm saying, oh, you're six foot? So am I. Welcome to the six foot club. I could say it all day long, but um, it doesn't make it so. It doesn't make it true. We may say that Jesus is our Lord, but that alone doesn't make it so. The true Lord of our life is revealed by our actions, not by our declarations. If we're to enter Jesus' kingdom, he must actually be our king. And if we persistently live in a manner that denies his authority, there's no amount of verbal affirmation will make it so. Now, here's a scary thought, maybe especially for us professional Christians that have a a rev in front of our name. The scary thought is this, that according to this verse that we just read, you can be used by God and not really belong to God. Oof. That God would sovereignly choose to display his power and his grace through ungodly leaders. He'll work in spite of them rather than because of them. It seems it's even possible to be committed to the mission of God and not really know the resurrected, indwelling God. Ouch. And just as an interesting aside, you know, notice that Jesus is referring to himself as Lord. Many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord. He's stating a fact about himself. That he is indeed God. And now this is just a reminder for those who would claim that Jesus was a great teacher. He's a great man, but he never claimed to be God. Oh, come on. Uh, he claimed he was God repeatedly throughout scripture. And, and the people who refused to believe him then, and there are people who, who refuse to believe him today. But his point here is that it takes more than just saying it. So again, religious knowledge isn't enough for entrance into the kingdom of God. If the Bible says Jesus is Lord and you therefore call him Lord, well, the question then comes, well, where did you get this information from? Is it secondhand religion? Is it sort of on your parents' coattails? Uh, Is this a cultural thing where everybody's kind of a Christian sort of? Did you learn it in Christian school and Sunday school? In other words, perhaps you have amassed a certain amount of facts, although absolutely true, which you assumed gave you access to the kingdom. Perhaps you had a religious experience. You pray, you sought God in a time of need. You know, there's no atheists in foxholes kind of idea. Listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, says. You say you believe in God? Good. The devil also believes and trembles. So it ain't enough to talk about Jesus, to refer to him as Lord, to believe that God exists, to admire Jesus' teaching, even to be baptized. One of the denominational leaders of the past that I really respect William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, he once predicted that there would 
come a day where there would be a form of Christianity without Christ, uh, salvation without his blood, uh, religion without the Holy Spirit. And it's hard not to think that, at least in some circles, that prediction has come true. I, I made the argument a few weeks ago that the narrow gate, the wide road, these were not references to heaven and hell, who's in, who's out, who's Christian, who's not Christian. I argued that the, the wide and the narrow road are decisions we make every day, really. You know, um, choices that will mean either a great inheritance, an abundant life, or sort of a skin of your teeth Christianity. Uh, those who kind of think that Christianity just begins in the starting blocks, but it's really about the lifelong journey, what Paul calls the race. And today in Matthew 7, verse 22, as Jesus wraps up, it seems now he is actually indeed talking about this final judgment, the separating, if you will, of the saved and the unsaved. And lots of times God has stepped into history to judge his people. But the Bible's very clear that there's actually going to be a final judgment. A, a, a once and for all judgment. When all people who ever lived from the first day of creation to present will face a verdict on their eternity. And who do you suppose will be the judge that day? None other than Lord Jesus himself. You guessed it. And according to this passage and others like the story of, of Jesus and the separating of the sheep and the goats, a parable, um, it turns out many are going to be surprised on that day of judgment. Namely, those who trusted in their external Christianity, their reputation, their good works. Now, I would just like to say there are a lot of Christians pretty confident in their eschatology. This is the study of, of last days and last things. They have their charts and their timelines and their graphs, and they have a pretty rock-solid map of how everything's going to go down. And I would you know, gently warn us to, to hold all that pretty loosely, uh, that maybe things aren't as crystal clear as your charts. Um, we will know a lot more about heaven five minutes after we've been there than our lifetime of guesswork and left behind books. I also can't help but think the ambiguity of it all might have been intentional on God's part. You know, if he wanted us to know the dates and the times and the countries involved, I think he would have made it explicit. I think, though, that he did make the important things explicit, okay? So here's, here's four things that, from Scripture, we know uh, will happen in these last days. Number one, there will be a final judgment following the second coming of Christ. Christ will return and there will be a judgment. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, Hebrews says, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation 
to those who are waiting for him. Second thing is that Jesus himself will be the judge. It says that in Acts uh, 17, 2 Timothy 4.1. Also says uh, the third thing is that all the dead throughout the ages will be raised to be judged. Um, 1 Thessalonians says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. Every single person, saved or unsaved, those who accepted the good news, those who refused the good news, everyone from Adam and Eve to Pharaoh and Joseph, Nebuchadnezzar to Caesar to Hitler to Osama bin Laden to Billy Graham to uh, the last person who was born, all of them will bend a knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. Not necessarily because they believed it on earth, but to the glory of God the Father. And then the fourth thing that we can be sure of is that there will be two categories of people who will be judged, the unsaved and the saved. Now the saved will be uh, given a reward or maybe even withheld a certain reward, but their eternal salvation is secure. And here at this final judgment, we learn that there are people who had been prophesying in Jesus' name, performing miracles, driving out demons. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. He doesn't say, hey, I knew you for a while, but you kind of drifted away. He says, I never knew you. Oof. Why did they think they were saved? Could it be that they trusted their good works, um, their charity that got lots of applause, their accomplishments, all of which is actually contrary to the gospel, which says you can't earn your way into this. And if you wonder why there are some high-profile TV preachers and faith healers who never preach the gospel but refer to the cross kind of only in terms of health and wealth. Maybe it's because the true gospel hasn't permeated their lives. Maybe it's a different gospel, like Paul says in Galatians, a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, he says in 2 Corinthians. Can I ask you as we close, what, what is your hope of eternal life in heaven? What, what would you say to God on that day if you were to meet him yourself and if he were to ask you why you should be here in heaven, would you talk about your perfect church attendance, your donations to charity, that there's people who will vouch for you that you're basically a good person? I'm, I am begging you not to trust in that defense, Okay? If God were to ask me, hey, Jonathan, what makes you think that you should go to heaven? I assure you, I will not say that 
it's because I gave my life to full-time church ministry or that I memorized scripture or I went on mission trips or led people to the Lord even or tithed faithfully. All I'll be able to do is point to Jesus and say, your son paid the price for me. Jesus has bought our salvation with his own blood. His dying words were, it is finished. It's done. You don't have to work for your salvation. You don't have to earn it. You just receive it. His sacrifice is is final. His work is complete. And our salvation is secure. Receive the gift. Would you today? I'm told that Buddha's last words were, strive without ceasing. Work really hard for your salvation. He died giving a pep talk while our Savior died securing our redemption. Look, I want to invite you today. There's no special wording you need to recite. No no formula or anything. Just your authentic trust in him as your king and as your Lord. A heart that is repentant. um, A confession of faith through prayer. How do I pray? Well, there's, again, it's, there's no secret formula. You might say something like, Jesus, I open my heart to you today uh, to receive your forgiveness, to receive your life that you provide. I believe you are God. I believe you are good. I thank you for dying for my salvation. Make yourself real to me. Help me accept your unconditional love. Set me free today from my brokenness. Rebuild my life because of your amazing grace. Oh, how sweet the sound that would save a wretch like me. If you pray something like that, you'll be welcomed not only into his forever kingdom, but into this family of believers, this kingdom life, this abundant life that you can experience today. Ah, you won't regret it. You won't regret it. I pray even maybe as we sing that this would be a decision time for you as you're watching or listening to this. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus, I pray. Laying yourself down, raising up the Raising up the broken to life. Maybe you uh, made that decision for the first time. And uh, You've gotten out of the starting blocks and begun a great journey, a great race. What next? Will you let somebody at NAC know? We'd like to give you a Bible. We'd like to maybe uh, help you discern next steps so that it's not just about 
saying yes, but it's about growing in Christ, being a disciple, living for him. And uh, so, so let us know, would you? May, maybe we'll get baptized, which is the public confession and celebration of, of your faith. Uh, maybe you'd be willing to be mentored in discipleship. Uh, it's, it's not about starting it's about growing. It's not just about singing. It's about worshiping. It's not just about coming to church. It's about going and actually being the church, living this out. You sure are love people.